Hi, and welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. This is your host, Spencer Martin. This week, we are talking about key takeaways from the tour of Romandy, as well as doing a little bit of preview of the upcoming Giro d'Italia, which starts this Saturday. I'm very excited that we are into Grand Tour season. Um, love love these races, love the Giro in particular. So it's great that we're already back at this time of year. Um, if it feels like we just did this, it's because the COVID compressed schedule of 2020 means, means that there is much less than 12 months in between. These two races, if you remember last year, was won by Teo Gigenhart of Ineos. Um, he will not be back. Um, but we do have Jai Henley, who got second, so that's pretty exciting. And Joao Almeida, the breakout star of that race, will also be there. But first, if you want to support the podcast, you can sign up for the newsletter at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. There's a free edition that comes out once a week. If you are listening to this podcast and enjoying it, it's a no-brainer. Sign up for that now. And there's also a paid edition that you get daily, daily Grand Tour coverage um, and analysis breakdowns right after the race sent directly to your inbox. Um, it it also comes with discounts to select brands like Stage of Cycling and Cura of Switzerland. So go to beyondthepeloton.substack.com to sign up for that today. So Tour of Romandy wrapped up this past weekend. Um, kind of a tertiary race, if we're being honest. Um, in the past, it's been won by some some pretty big names. I mean, Primoz Roglic, Richie Port, Nairo Quintana. You know, Chris Froome did it in 2013 and 2014. Both years he won the Tour de France. Bradley Wiggins won it in 2012, the year he won the Tour de France. So in the past, it's definitely been an important race for the Tour and an important primer. Um, the start list was, was definitely noticeably weaker this year. Um, I think that speaks to the top two Grand Tour riders in the world, Tadej Pogacar and Primoz Roglic, have expressed interest in just doing a, a slightly different uh, pre Tour de France schedule than is normal uh, than than riders normally have done in the past. They're, they're neither is doing the normal run up, um, the May June run up before the Tour in July, and I think this is just it's just a further advancement of cycling becoming more of a training sport rather than a racing sport where the favorites train into shape versus race. And I, th- this is for a lot of reasons. We we noticed in 2020 when there was the forced break from COVID during the summer, everyone went away and did their own training camps. People came in really, really, really fit, really fast. I mean, they were like setting records up climbs at the Tour de France. So that showed that, hey, you know, maybe we don't have to schlep around, you know, Europe and go to these B, C, D level races, you know, in bad weather. I can just go to the Canary Islands or um, Mallorca and just do my own altitude camps and great weather and my own food. And I don't have to deal with the press and and the drug testing. I don't have to do drug testing every day. That's also probably a big component. Let's not forget that. Uh, But it's definitely hurt the start list at these. I mean, Ineos, the two stage races Ineos have won this year, Uh, Catalonia and Romandy have just been really, really poor fields besides them. I mean, there was only, I believe, two Grand Tour winners on the start list at Romandy, and that was Garrett Thomas and Chris Froome. We'll talk about Chris Froome uh, a little bit later this podcast. He was terrible, though. Uh, so in, in, if we just step back, we'll talk about some things that happened, but Thomas won this kind of uncontested. He won this comfortably. The only person who really pushed him was Richie Port, his own teammate. Uh, so yeah, it was like no real challengers, which which was disappointing from a viewer perspective, a fan perspective, but it makes sense if you consider this growing trend of riders just just preferring to train rather than race. And another component here is just this weather was terrible. I mean, the Tour of Romandy and Tour of Switzerland are both Swiss stage races. They're like anti-advertisements for Switzerland. Switzerland's a beautiful country. Um, you should go if you're comfortable with kind of the inflated prices relative to the rest of Europe. Uh, it can sometimes feel like it's just designed as a mechanism to harvest money from you. 
but it's very beautiful. It's a very unique country. Um, the weather can be fine, can be very nice, pleasant. But man, in these in these two stage races, it is always terrible. And it it nothing makes you want to go to Switzerland less than these stage races. I mean, it was just awful weather every day, just like rain and cold. It looked miserable. Rarely am I watching a professional bike race thinking like, God, I'm glad I'm not a world tour cyclist. And today or all last week was I was thinking that. I mean, it just looked miserable. And that, I mean, I think we're just seeing top riders being like, well, why would I go suffer through the cold and the wet when I could just have my own training camp in nice weather and I don't have to deal with that and I don't have to get sick because my body's run down um, out in cold temperatures fighting to stay warm and I'm you know, more prone to sickness. I can just train from the comfort of my own you know, mountaintop chalet in the Alps or in some island somewhere. The weather produced a pretty dramatic stage on stage three on Friday. It was I thought it was going to be like a formulaic sprinters versus the breakaway day, but uh, the weather was poor. Mark Soler attacked. Uh, the race leader, Rowan Dennis, crashed, and it kind of put Ineos in the back foot, and Soler was able to get off the front, stayed away, won the race, and uh, took the overall lead. And at this point, I was thinking like, well, this is interesting. This could work, because up to this point, I thought Rowan Dennis might just ride to the, to the overall win, even though he was clearly working for uh, Garrett Thomas and Richie Port, his Enios teammates, he was so strong on stage two. I mean, he was worked all the way up the climb, the last climb, led all the way down the descent, led on the flats for like 20K into the finish, and then like had enough left to attack and try to put a gap into people in the final like 1.5 kilometers. So I just thinking like, man, this guy's so strong. He's going to just sit on the front for the next, you know, two road stages and then win the time trial. And it's like, it's curtains, but he crashed. This is kind of where I've been, you know, I'm always like going back and forth with commenters on the newsletter pieces and in the subscribers discord about what any should do here, like what their course of action should be now that they kind of have a bit of a vacuum at the top at the leadership positions with the grand tour riders. And a lot of people think, you know, Rowan Dennis would be like he's he should actually be their GC leader, and on paper that kind of makes sense. He's a really good time trialist. I mean, world champion in 2019, I believe, and he proved at the Giro last year that he can climb with the best in the world. But to be a Grand Tour winner, I mean, there are intangibles, and he just doesn't have them. I mean, he, this he's always crashing. I mean, not always, but he crashes at important points of races, and he just doesn't have like the the overall level headedness that you really need to be a a Grand Tour winner. Um, and Garrett Thomas is actually kind of like a mini version of him where he's very good climber, better climber than Rowan Dennis, um, good time trialist, not quite as good as Rowan Dennis, but just kind of has like this human element to him where you can tell he's flustered, he makes mistakes other pro cyclists don't make. And that was evident on stage four when uh, he had a great, great ride on the final climb to pull in Mike Woods, who had attacked and gotten to the virtual race lead. He's... Uh, with Mike Woods going into the finish and like just his hands slip off the bars, like in the last 50 meters. I mean, you like never see this happen. This happens like, you know, sometimes, you know, in, in your most embarrassing moments riding by yourself, maybe this has happened to you. I don't know if I've ever seen this in a sprint with, with the GC, you know, with the GC of a race on the line and he's just lying there and it's a live clock. So the, the clock just keeps ticking until he crosses the line. Um, what to make matters worse. Ben O'Connor passes him to take a time bonus there. So 
He's laying on the ground. Time bonuses are like going up in smoke. The time, the clock's ticking. Every second he lays there, he has to make that time back up in the, in the time trial the next day. So it's a complete disaster. Uh, he does recover. I mean, he gets on the bike, but he can't pedal the bike because the gear's too big and it's an uphill slope. It's slippery. He can't clip in his pedals. I mean, this is like, it looked very human. Like this is how we've all been, you know, it's like, Oh, stop light. My gear's too big. I can't clip in. I look like an idiot. I can't get to this intersection. That's what this looked like in a super high level bike race with the best riders in the world. It was really surreal to see. Um, and it just kind of speaks to actually Thomas, he looked like kind of an idiot. Um, he looked like he was flying around out there. I actually think he recovered pretty well. This could have been worse. He could have fallen down again. He could have tried to run and slipped because of those cleats are so hard to get traction on, especially on wet asphalt. And he, he crossed the line. He limits his losses to 21 seconds, which, you know, would be catastrophic for most people in a one week stage race, but he's such a good time trialist relative to woods that he was probably pretty confident he could make that time up. He didn't get seriously hurt, which he could have. I mean, if you watch the fall, there's like a gif of it in the newsletter it is really hard i mean these are like the hardest falls when you're not going that fast and you don't expect to go down you can really hurt yourself because you don't you, you're not skidding or sliding on the on the pavement but it also had me wondering like why he was even going for the stage win anyway really all he has to do there is just you know just ride steady to the line and he wins the overall because woods isn't going to get enough time on him to hold him off in the time trial so he really doesn't he doesn't need to win that stage he doesn't need to shift right there he doesn't need to stand up um, it was all totally unnecessary but i was looking back he hasn't won a mass start race a professional race since 2018 uh since he won a mountain stage at the tour de france in that july so that's almost three years at this point he's probably desperate to get a to get a race win to kind of prove to himself uh the team and the fans that he's still like a world class level rider but it it does it's not if you're just looking at it from like a simple risk reward point he shouldn't have even been sprinting there he shouldn't have been standing up on the hoods um shifting with that little left in the race it also shows why you shouldn't sprint on the hoods it got popular with Lance Armstrong i was like looking back through images trying to figure out where this came from when you're in the drops, you, you're much more secure. Your hands, if you slip, you, you can grab onto something because your hands are ensconced in the drops. On the hoods, if you have a little bit of slip up, like you're going down because there's nothing to grab onto. It's just like, it's the abyss once you're off the hoods. Um, Armstrong was like a big, big hoods rider. He would climb on the hoods, sprint on the hoods, do everything on the hoods. And now that's like, that's how the kids do it these days, but it is really not as secure. Like Marco Pantani or even like Alejandro Valverde, riders like that, guys who grew up in like more traditional cycling environments, they, they're always sprinting the drops and it's a much more, much safer and more secure position to sprint from. And this is a perfect example of why. Um, Thomas crashes all the time. I mean, I posted his career stage race results, like a table of it in the newsletter, it's a lot of DNFs. He crashes out of a lot of races, even a lot of the, like 2013 Tour de France, he crashed and broke his hip and finished. So there are even races on there that he's finished and he's had bad crashes in. A um, couple Tour de France's that, you know, he won 2018, but I even believe in either 2016 or 2015, he was leading the race or close to leading the race and had a crash there. It's just a crash-prone rider. At the Giro d'Italia last year, he probably wins that if he doesn't go down. Um, he crashed. He was in a neutral. He was, but these and these aren't just like bad. Like they appear to be bad luck from the outside looking in. But if you put them together into the mosaic, or even just look closer at them in the moment when they happen, they are because he he 
makes mistakes. You know, he's not totally focused. He was sitting at the back of a neutral section at the Giro d'Italia, like at stage three or four last year on the Mount Etna stage. And, you know, a, a bottle pops out of a rider's uh, cage on their bike and he rides over it and crashes and he has to leave the race. I mean, Valverde probably doesn't know what the back of a race looks like. Like, you know, really, really, really locked in GC contenders are never back there. They're never tooling around at the back of a neutral stage. They're always at the front. They're always locked in. Yeah, I think he ran into a moto one year. This was also in Sicily at the Giro d'Italia. That must have been 2017. You know, he's just, he's not as locked in as you need to be if you want to be like a major GC contender. And this is like a continuation of that trend and shows it's not going any, anywhere anytime soon. And it must make Ineos a little bit nervous about sending him to the tour as their as their GC leader and he proved at this race that that he should be you know he is their probably their best option I know I was really not sold on it until this past week but I hadn't really seen him climb that well since really since 2019 at the tour when he got second he's just been very poor with his climbing um, his time trialing has been good um, I really thought he put it all together here for the first time in a long time and proved that you know he probably can't beat Roglic and Pogachar, but at least he can try and he can stay in third place. And if you're in third place and something bad happens, if if those guys crash, get sick, or you know, test positive, something happens, you're in position to scoop up that win. And he he gives him the best option. I think he proved it definitively this week. But the crashing habit has to make him nervous. Um, they really want want a plan B and maybe even a plan. The problem is once you go to a plan C, then you start eating into your domestiques and you have three leaders and five guys who are working for those three leaders. There's all types of problems with that. We kind of covered that a few weeks ago with the, the breaking down how UAE's let the road decide strategy ended up costing them two over the Basque country, which, you know, in the grand scheme of things doesn't matter, but it's a little like experiment to show you, well, how it could go wrong at a bigger race like the Tour de France. In the time trial on stage five, Remy Cavagna won from Dakota Quickstep. Really good TT win from him. Stefan Bissinger gets second. Bissinger actually rode much faster on the second half of the course, the flatter half of the course, averaged 57K an hour, just really, really freaking fast. Um, one thing that worries me about Bissinger, he's kind of, he's a 22-year-old Swiss rider, kind of like the new kid on the block. He's kind of came out of nowhere with time trials this year and has been really good. Um, he lost time on the uphill first part. You know, it's like, uh, it was definitely a tough rolling first half of the TT course, but that shows to me that he is fast in time trials because of his arrow position, which is great. You know, like he's milking everything he can out of his output, out of his wattage output. But it also means he, there might be a ceiling on his talent here. You know, if he doesn't have the pure watts to jam up climbs where aerodynamics matter less, there's so few opportunities in pro cycling to win pancake flat time trials. They really don't come around that often anymore. So um, I almost saw, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I, I am, I'm definitely being overly negative for a 22-year-old time trialist who got this great result in this time trial. But something about that, yeah, it worries me a little bit when you see like, well, maybe he's maxed out all he can do because that TT position's never going to get better. You know, he's doing as much as he can with it. And his watts just aren't that high. This kind of reminds me of Victor Campenarts, another rider who's very, very good time trialist, uh, but he does it with superior aerodynamics. It means that in road stages, there's not a lot he can do. You know, maybe he can get in solo breaks and contort his body into a good aero position, you know, on his road bike, but he can't really work for the team because when you're working for the team, your aero position doesn't matter. Actually, you want to be 
more upright, giving more draft to people behind you, and you just want to be like a wattage cottage, someone who can just like crank out 400 watts on the front, you know, while your teammates fall behind. So it actually makes you, 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 it can be surprising when a rider like Victor Campanarts, who's a very good time trialist, like one of the best five time trialists in the world, can't get a contract, and you wonder, like, how could this be? But it means they, besides finishing fifth and fourth and third and second, a lot of time trials, they don't offer a lot for your team. So that would be my only concern about Bissinger, that he's kind of turning into Campanarts 2.0, where you can pop off a lot of really good, really impressive time trial results, but you don't actually offer your team that much value outside of those results. The final GC was Thomas in first place, uh, Richie Port, 30 seconds back. Richie had a great time trial as well. I mean, Richie had two great time trials where Thomas did slow up in the final TT to play it safe. Um, I'm sure Port didn't because he was fighting for that second place, but he finished just two seconds behind Thomas, and he finished on the same time on him in the prologue. So that shows that Richie Port is time trialing incredibly well. And I was actually really, really impressed with Richie Port this week. Um, he got dropped by Thomas on that climb on stage four, but it's not clear to me how much of that was just him playing the good teammate where Thomas attacked and Richie was just sitting on wheels behind, making sure no one could, could uh, bridge up to Thomas on the climb. So I, I came out of this feeling, feeling pretty good about Richie Port. Um, he might be their plan B. I mean, at the tour, this is all, it's all leaves Carapaz in kind of an awkward position where originally it was supposed to be Teo Gegenhart leading the race. Or at the tour, it was the leaders were supposed to be Teo Gegenhart, Richard Carapaz, and Garrett Thomas, and Richie Port was just supposed to be in a support role. But Richie has shown, I mean, he deserves to be a leader on that team at the tour. Uh, he is very good. Carapaz has not proved that by any stretch of the imagination. He's actually been pretty bad in these time trials in these stage races, not shown that he's des- deserves to be a leader. So Richie, I mean, is, is proving that I, I think, I think that, I don't know why they released that long list. Actually, I think that was a huge mistake. It was, it's very bizarre. I mean, Adam Yates isn't even on the long list for the tour. That doesn't make any sense. He's one of the best residents on the team. Um, Teo Gigenhart should be going to the Giro to defend it. Carapaz is, is not a good option for this tour because there's so much time trialing and there's actually the climbs aren't that hard and there's not that many summit finishes. There's not many places for him to game time. Port Port's perfect for this te- for this tour. Uh, it makes no sense to me that it, the leaders are should be Thomas and Port. I mean, I think they proved it. I think we know it. Um, if you want to get really crazy, you could say Dennis, but Dennis just, I think he proved it. At, Roman D, why he is not a GC leader. And he's actually, he seems happy as a teammate. He hasn't really expressed any interest in getting into the GC game since he made that move over to Ineos. Uh, Fausto Masnada gets a surprise third place by a second over Mark Soler. He had a great, um, great stage four. Um, and he was actually leading, <laughs> led Thomas up to Woods and then got dropped. So that was kind of weird. But at that point, I mean, as we see here, he just needed to fight for every second. So he knew that he couldn't really afford just to kind of sit back and play games. And with Thomas, he needs to get as much time on Mark Soler as possible. He had a good TT. Not a, not a great time trial normally, but he gets sixth. He finishes two seconds behind Richie Port, 21 seconds behind Cavani, the stage winner, and, and only, you know, four seconds behind Garrett Thomas. So great result for him. Um, he's going to the zero. We'll talk about him in a second, too. I'm in Mike Woods, who was leading the race going into the final stage. Uh, just really laid an egg here. Really, uh, really, really did not put in a good performance in the time trial. Like finished over a minute back. 
And that's a little concerning to me because even even bad time trialists, when they get like Carlos Sastra at the 2008 tour, not a good time trialist by any stretch of the imagination, but he's able just to make it happen um, in the final TT there on stage 20 and held off Goodell Evans, who was a much better time trialist, just because you can focus in. I mean, Marco Pantani in 1998 was the same way. Really, really bad time trialist. But you know, you get, you get the yellow jersey on your back and you can make things happen that you can't normally happen. You're just focused in for one day. Um, Woods looked, looked, looked quite poor, looked very bad. Um, and not only is that concerning for Woods specifically, but it makes me wonder about their factor bikes that the team is on. They're known to be not, they're like stylish looking bikes, the Israel Startup Nation Steam Bikes, the brand is factor. They're stylish looking bikes, um, but they are known to not be very fast and not that good. It's a small company and we're seeing, you know, with bike brands where the big are getting bigger and the small you know, are kind of stuck in this niche space and the big companies can do a lot of R&D and just make faster machines. It's not as important with road bikes because you're bunched up so much in a Peloton. Aerodynamics are not as important um, when you're on climbs and you're in a Peloton. You can, you can make it work with a crappy bike in a mass start road race, but in a TT, there's no hiding. And uh, I mean, this, I think this is what Rowan Dennis threw a fit about and left the Tour de France when he was on um, Bahrain, where he thought their TT bikes were crap because they are, because, you know, big company, a lot of companies don't even want to focus on a TT bike because who's going to buy one? Who, who would ever ride a TT bike outside of a race? They stink. They're not fun to ride. And I mean, so it's clearly like, it's clearly a big deal inside the Peloton. Riders care about this and we can see why. I mean, this actually makes me concerned if I was an Israel Startup Nation, you know, stakeholder or team member or manager, I'd be a little concerned about my ability to compete in stage races because I think that's the big takeaway of Romandy is that TTs matter so much. I, I feel like they're they're under they're under talked about. I mean, people talk about you know riders like Sepp Kuss and Mike Woods like like they can win stage races or like they have won a lot of stage races. Neither of those guys have ever won a European stage race, you know, specifically because of this problem because they can't time trial. So yeah, if my team just had a slow time trial bike, that's a big problem. You're not going to win many races, many stage races with that. Um, and Sepkos, just last note on the race, Sepkos was terrible. He's actually been terrible all year. He got dropped on the climb. He's a climbing specialist. Uh, lost 7.6 seconds per kilometer in the TT, so that's not getting any better either. Um, I just don't really see a path forward for him. I, he was talked about like he could be a GC leader after last year. And I think we're seeing now that that was, that was a mistake. That wasn't, people weren't critically thinking about that because, well, how would that work? I mean, sure, he can have good climbing days, but he also has a, bad, a lot of bad climbing days. Um, and his time trial has just never been good. So I don't really know like what his path to success would ever be in a stage race. I mean, it would have to be a really crazy race where the whole thing gets turned on its head and, you know, kind of like the Dauphiné it was last year and is normally where just a crazy final stage and he can gain a bunch of time but as far as grand tours go i mean that's never going to happen we're just seeing that's that's not possible from him um and even as a stage hunter it's going to be hard to prove to the team that he deserves that when he's getting chances to lead the team this is his second chance to lead the team at a stage race this year and he's just really been just a no impact guy and that's not good. You know, that's not good at all. He's at a point in his career where he's trying to prove that he's more than domestique. And um, 
it's not happening. He did sign a long-term deal with, with Yumbo, so like his employment's fine. Um, if he wants to stay and be a Mountain Domestique, I think they would be happy to have him. I mean, that's that's not in any jeopardy. But as far as advancing out of that role, uh, these last two leadership chances he's gotten have not really proven to anyone that, that he deserves to get that again. One more note from uh, Roman D is Chris Froome, who was terrible, terrible all week. Um, it's, it's shocking to see him actually regressing. If you remember last year in July and August leading into the Tour de France, we actually thought he might be able to go to that race as a somewhat of a leader for Ineos. He was making it to at least the final climb and ha- almost halfway up the final climb at times in these preparation races. But at Romandy, he was immediately off the back, just like fighting to, to not get time cut, which, which is uh, awful, awful at this point in the year when you're that close to the Tour. It's very possible he's not even able to start the race for, for Israel Startup Nation. And at this, at this point, with this form, he can't do it. I mean, he would, he would not make it to the mountain stages, and he would suffer the indignity of being time cut, which would put the team in a really tough position because then they, they're a rider down and they could have used that spot on, on somebody else who can help Dan Martin and Mike Woods and maybe even try to win the stage themselves. So, I mean, in, in the, the team, it's a really, really sticky situation because they're in the first year of... Uh, 25 million euro five-year contract and if they can't take him to the race they almost can't afford to leave him at home they're going to pay a guy five million years a year not to race the tour de france that the biggest race probably really the only race they really care about as far as global exposure so it's a really unenviable enviable position they're in i think we're going to look back on that signing as one of the worst signings in in cycling in recent memory, because not only are they paying Chris Room a ton of money and he can't, not only can he not really compete, he can't really race. He can't offer anything for the team. He can't work for other people because he's not strong enough. And he's tying up tons of funds that they could have, they could have thrown that money at Tadej Bogachar. They could have thrown that money at Mark Hershey, you know, they could have really set themselves up to have an exciting young team. And instead, they, they've kind of, and, and Mike Woods, you know, they, they've got a lot of old, older riders on that team. They had to take chances, though. Um, it's just not a team that, a new team like that with an owner who is unproven and a management team that's a little bit on the outside looking in. You know, they had to go older and they had to overpay guys. And some of that's worked out. I mean, Seth Van Mark actually had a pretty good classic season, I thought. And Mike Woods is, is looking very good. I mean, as good as Mike Woods has ever looked. So, um, in that in that sense, it's worked. But with Froome, they really whiffed here. I think they could they could have gone. They could have thrown a lot of money at a young rider who was in a bad situation, exactly like Hershey. You know, they could have. I think they could have Jai Hindley. They could have thrown money at Jai Hindley. They could have had, thrown money at Teo Gigginhart. The whole thing is odd. I don't understand it. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised if Froome is not at the Tour de France. All right. Well, that's enough about Romandy. Let's talk about uh, the Giro d'Italia, which is coming up this Saturday. I love the Giro. I love Italy. It's one of my favorite countries. I think the, the Giro is like the perfect, it's just so Italian. You, you feel like you're just being ingrained in the culture as you watch the race. And in a way that I don't think the Tour um, and the Vuelta do for their uh, host nations of France and Spain. So it's a really special race, a really unique race. Um, and it's just, I've, it's just, I think it's at a great time of year. You know, we're coming out of these classics. It's it just so, it's such a nice it's like a like jumping into a nice warm bath, and it just kind of takes you from the from the harshness of the spring, the winter spring into the summer. I think it's just such a nice bridge. On the other hand, though, the thing about the Giro is sometimes it suffers from the startless quality. And 
it's actually kind of it's like the perfect Italian metaphor. I mean, it's it's it sparkles so much. It, it really distracts you. You just you you feel like a better person when you're just watching the zero, and it kind of can uh, it can distract you from like some poor infrastructure where you're like, well, some of these writers are not. You know, there's really not an A grade contender here. You know, th- these are uh, these are kind of like the bargain bin GC writers. Um, and I, I know Remco Evanepoel and Egan Bernal and Vincenzo Nibali are coming, but I'll get into that. I'll touch on that in a second. And it's it's also as this reputation is just this like firecracker of a race where anything can happen, and it's just so exciting. It's not like the boring tour, but I hate to say it, the Giro can be quite boring. And if we look at the route, you know, it it has this this old school mentality where it's almost like a Jean Jean Marie LeBlanc Tour de France. If you remember those from like the 90s and the, and the aughts and the 2000s, where they'd start with the time trial early, um, you know, just flat, 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 flat stage. Maybe you have the first, you have one mountain stage in the second week, maybe, and then more flat stages, more intermediate stages. And then just as you're about to fall asleep and, and, and tune out, things start to get interesting around stage 14, 15, and then you just have like all the mountain stages are crammed in the final week. And that is what the Giro has been doing for the last few years. Um, I think they... One thing to be said for the Giro is the the boring route can come from. They do try to make it a true tour of Italy. They go around the country. Um, Spain and, and France don't even try to do that because they can get more exciting routes. We can debate at a later date and later time if that is good or bad. But one thing this does is it. One thing this tour quality does is it does. Uh, it makes the it makes it a slow burn. If you were being kind, you'd, you'd call this a slow burn route. Um, where, you know, it's like a Shakespearean play where we get the, the time trials kind of like the prologue and we're going to see the players. The players will be introduced to us. Um, and then we have this first big set piece on stage nine, a mountaintop finish. Um, and then things really kick off at stage 14 um, when we go up to Zoncolon. So, so we're not going to, we're not really going to know who's going to win this race for a long time. And I think that's partially why they do this. They, they want to hold you in suspense as much as possible. Um, now let's talk about the contenders really quick. This is this is uh, I I said there's no one here. It's kind of a garbage race. You might put back push back on that and say, well, there's Egan Bernal. He won the 2019 Tour de France. There's Vincenzo Nibali, one of the greatest GC riders and G- one of the greatest hybrid GC one day riders of all time and an exciting racer. There's also there's Remco Evenepoel, a 21 year old exciting star of the future um yeah and, th- and that's all true but let's go through this really quick Vincenzo Nibali just broke his wrist he's starting the race but he's not going to do anything he's guys got a broken wrist and even before he broke the wrist if we remember he was fading you know he, he was and is fading I mean he hasn't won a grand tour in five years the last grand tour he won was was the 2016 Giro d'Italia he got seventh here last year got kind of got blown out of the water with it with I would say a mediocre field and and his explanation was, you know, I guys, I'm riding as fast as I've ever ridden, but I'm just not fast enough. These these new riders are faster than I am. You know, he he and, and I looked into this. He was doing about this. His his times on the climbs were not that much slower than when he was winning the race. He was just getting out climbed. You know, and this time trial was pretty good, and he was getting out time trialed, and he's putting out good watts in those time trials. But he's 36 years old. He's definitely deteriorating. That's just a fact. That's science. But he's not, he's not falling off a cliff, but he's, he's, 
I think it's this double thing where he's getting disrupted from both ends. He's aging and his skills are, are deteriorating. And just this new crop of riders are just at a higher level than he was competing with in his career. We have to also remember he was never the, the type of rider that could just, you know, in pure force win races. He's always been a very finesse. He's won races on finesse on his, his racing, his tactical awareness and his, his uh, skills on descents and tricky courses. So even at the best of times, he was not blowing. He did blow everyone away at the 2014 tour, but outside of that, not really blowing people away. So yeah, Nibali's not going to do anything. I mean, he's got a broken wrist. Like, let's be honest, like, this is crazy that we're even having the conversation. I mean, Velenus had a piece today that they're excited to see the showdown between Remco Evanepoel and Vincenzo Nibali. But Evanepoel hasn't raced for 266 days because he broke his femur. I believe he had a compound fracture of his femur at the Giro di Lombardia last year. I mean, he's not going to be competing. And even if he never had that injury, and he's never even started a Grand Tour before. And I, I've never, I have not been able to find, except for the very first Grand Tours, where obviously the winners had never started Grand Tours before because they hadn't been invented yet. I've never been able to find an example of someone winning the first Grand Tour they've ever started. So even in the best of times, he's, it's just not going to happen. I mean, he's not going to win the first Grand Tour he starts. That that's like, literally does not happen in the sport. And so broken femur, compound fracture of the femur, first race back from that. That's a strike against him. Never ridden a Grand Tour before. That's another strike against him. Third strike would just be even if he didn't get hurt, he's had a 266-day hiatus from racing. Um, I went back to 2013, the longest hiatus uh, between a race and a guy winning a Grand Tour, starting that Grand Tour that he won, was 55 days. Primoz Roglic in 2019 before the Vuelta España. And he already had a Grand Tour in his legs. He did the, uh, the Giro d'Italia that year. So... It's not like he was coming into that the first Grand Tour of the year. Um, and then that takes us to Bernal. We haven't seen the guy in 53. By the time the Giro starts in Torino on Saturday in the time trial, uh, he will not have raced for 53 days. Uh, so that's two, two away from tying the record in, let's say, the modern era. Let's define that as the modern era because I didn't want to go back past 2013 and do more research. So that's how we're defining the modern era. That's not a great sign. I mean, just just right there, I'm a little nervous. And if we remember, Roglic had already done a Grand Tour, had one in his legs. Um, Bernal hasn't raced that much this year. He's looked okay when he has. He's also looked vulnerable. I mean, he got dropped at Torino Adriatico by Woot Van Aert. That's not a great sign <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. But um, I, I would say I would concede that Bernal is the, the th- out of the three quote-unquote stars um, that I feel the best about, that I think could still possibly win the race. Um, I don't love these rumors coming out of Ineos that he's not racing because of his back. I guess they, they're probably true. I mean, he, he was on the Tour of the Alps start list and then was taken off. So it shows you that was a bit of an impromptu decision. Um, if he's having back issues, I mean, that's just kind of a bummer because he looked like a star of the future when he won the 2019 Tour de France. And then now it's looking like if he can't beat this back injury, it's, it, those things just never really, uh, you, can, you, you, you don't really have great careers after that starts happening. So that's, that's kind of a bummer. Um, and yeah, so also Nibali, Froome, and Simon Yates, this takes us to Yates. Simon Yates are the only riders on the start list who have ever won a Grand Tour before. So this is a really, I would say, if you're going to say it kindly, an open race, if you're going to say it, a little bit more frankly, this is a soft field. 
Um, so, I mean, Bernal, that could also be your argument for Bernal, um, that the field is so soft. Um, Simon Yates, not, I'm not a big fan, Simon Yates fan. Um, I, I don't know why. I just kind of like underwhelms. He did that. If we all remember that 2018 Giro, that was really fun in retrospect when Simon Yates was dominating from like stage, basically stage, I don't know, six through 18. And it looked like he was just going to like barnstorm his way to the win. And Tom Dumoulin was battling him. And then Chris Room came out of left field and won the overall. Uh, that was pretty cool. Uh, I would, Simon did go on. He, he lost that Giro like spectacularly and he's never been the same since. So that's interesting to me. Uh, he went on to win the Volta later that year. And, uh, that's, that's his only grand tour win. That's like his biggest win of his career so far. Um, I've not believed in him, but he looked great at tour of the Alps. Um, I, it, it is, I'm like starting to wonder like, is Simon Yates back? Like, could he come back and redeem himself after that meltdown in 2018? Um, he's a pretty good time trialist. He's been time trialing pretty well. I mean, but he's just impressive because he's so small. He's like 127 pounds. So, um, and he can climb incredibly well. And this race has, has 38 kilometers of time trialing and then just brutal, brutal mountain stages in the Dolomites in the last week. Um, it is an absolutely brutal finish to the stage, finish to the race. So, um, for a rider like Joao, Joao Almeida, who we remember from last year, our, our darling, our young darling who won our hearts um, and wore the yellow jersey for the majority of the race. Um, even he's not looked good this year, so I, I wouldn't even consider him a contender. Even in the best of times, I think it could be really tough for him. I mean, he's actually much more suited to like this year's tour route that's a bit soft in the mountains and lots of time trialing. Um, I don't think he's going to be able to hang in these mountain stages. So if we pull back and then kind of drill down on you're going to hear a lot of start lists with or a lot of favorites lists with like alexander vlasov bill bow hugh carthy jai henley who got second last year i would say forget all of those guys like they're not going to win i mean that's just filler that's just like media filler um henley is an he's an interesting prospect he's a very good climber he was very good at the race last year he's just not a good enough time trialist he's not better enough in the mountains to put a significant amount of time into someone like Simon Yates, who then could smoke him in the time trial. Um, I, I would say, I mean, if we're just talking about riders who are going to win this race, I think it's Simon Yates, Egan Bernal, Emmanuel Bookman, and that's it. I wouldn't look at anyone else. Um, Bookman, kind of a random name maybe, but he did get fourth at that 2019 Tour de France that Bernal won. That was a really impressive ride. Um, he's a great climber. I mean, not great, but you don't have to be you know, you don't have to be great to win this Giro. You just have to be like pretty good. Um, he's good enough at climbing to win this Giro. Good enough at time trialing to make time. The race finishes with the time trial. He could make up time that he's lost in that final week there. Uh, that fourth place of the tour was it was really impressive, uh, and I'm surprised it's not talked about more. Um, that's a, it was quite a good result. And so, if we're just talking about guys who can climb in time trial well enough. I think that's it. People probably would talk about Carthy as a possible winner because he got third at the Vuelta last year. But you got to remember that that's, I don't want to say not a real Grand Tour. That was not a full Grand Tour. That was like a 17, 18 stages. So, you know, almost a week less. 
And there was no difficult stage. There was no, I wouldn't say, shouldn't say difficult. I should rephrase that. There was, there was not the usual flat in transition first week. It just jumped right into the mountains. So that's perfect for Hugh Carthy. Uh, but if we remember on that final stage in Madrid, he lost like 22 seconds in a pretty formulaic bunch sprint, like in a ceremonial stage. So that shows us, I mean, he's just, he just ships time on flat and intermediate stages. He just makes mistakes. He's not great at positioning. He's very light, so he gets pushed around by the wind and other riders. Uh, I think he's going to get eaten alive by the first two weeks of this Euro. Uh, this is like a Hugh Carthy killer course. Um, same thing with Jai Henley. I mean, really talented climber, but it's going to take a lot of race craft to win this Euro. It's not going to be like last year where, where um, the field is so thinned out that if you have a few good days in the mountains, you can kind of plaster over, you know, a bit of a lack of racecraft and ability to perform, you know, in the whole accoutrement of a, of a Grand Tour. Uh, it starts with a time trial in Torino on Saturday, and then a sprint stage on Sunday, hilly stage on Monday, and then kind of an interesting little summit finish, I think, on, on, on Tuesday. So, and then I'll do a... I'll do a Monday podcast, so we'll, we'll check in before that summit finish. Um, time trial is going to be really interesting to watch. Uh, I assume Filippo Ghana would win, but he was so bad at Romandy that I don't know if he can recover from that. I mean, he was quite bad, very bad. So I would have thought Ghana would be a lock for that, but, but I'm not so sure. And so as far as the odds go, Bernal is a plus 275. That's okay. And I actually don't love that. That's actually pretty expensive for... How many question marks there are around him? Simon Yates at a plus 275. Um, that's okay. I, that's a lot to put on Simon Yates, though. That's pretty expensive. Uh, Manuel Bookman's at plus 1,000. That's also okay. I mean, actually, looking at these odd sheets, I, it's almost like stay away from this race. I don't quite I mean, I think Simon at plus 275 would be your safest bet. Um, I think he's probably the best rider in the race. Um, but he's quite unpredictable. I mean, he's not, he's not really given us a lot of confidence throughout his career that he can hold it together consistently for three weeks. But I think he's the best one on here. I mean, it's like Landa, you might, you're just wasting money with Landa. He's not going to win. Um, Sivakov, I love Sivakov as an idea. I love the idea of Pavel Sivakov. He's not going to win this race. He, this is actually the anti-Sivakov race because it's going to take a lot of skill, a lot of bike handling, a lot of tough days in the pack, in the peloton. Um, really, really small roads. Giro is known for small, uh, difficult, or small roads with like technical finishes. That's actually the anti-Sivakov course. Um, Mark Soler. So it's like Mark Soler and Masnada. It's easy to look at Romandy and say, well, they were pretty good at Romandy. They got third and fourth and Masnada looked great. But remember, they only got sent to Romandy because they were so bad all the rest of the year that so far this year that their team has basically made them go cram for the exam that you normally wouldn't want to be racing a stage race a few days before the Giro d'Italia starts. Um, but they just didn't have the form that their team sent them there to kind of top up before the Giro. Um, you know, I think Soler could get a stage win. I think that's his destiny here. Masnada, maybe a top five probably a top 10. So um, I, he's not, I don't think Masnada is going to be on the podium, but he could, he could actually provide like a fun, he could play a fun dark horse for, you know, maybe, especially coming off that Romandy fitness, he might do well in that opening TT 
And then the climbs are short enough and punchy enough that it suits him for quite a while, basically until the third week. So he could hang around, maybe even have the pink jersey um, deep into the race. So that will be a, like a fun storyline um, to have like an Italian in the race lead at the Giro d'Italia. We'll all talk about it. And then, and then the serious mountains come out in the Dolomites and then we'll forget Masnada uh, existed when Simon Yates smokes him. But that, that could be fun. Um, he is at a plus 10,000 though, is odd. So if we're just looking at this, who's the best value? He's actually not terrible because he's, his odds are equal with like uh, Giulio Ciccone, David Formolo, Damiano Caruso. None of those guys are even GC riders. So, you know, he's really in the bargain bin on, on the betting boards. So I'm actually not a terrible rider to back. I'm, I'm talking myself into him just purely from a value play. Not that I think he's going to ruin the race, but the odds make it worth to maybe to put a few quid on him, put a few euros on him. All right, well, thanks for joining. Paying subscribers will get a daily update uh, every day, daily analysis for, for every stage. So um, I'll be sending that out after the time trial on Saturday and then the sprint stage on Sunday. There'll probably be a, be a light one, some light reading on Sunday. But things do get interesting on just looking at the, the course map. You could think it's a bit boring, but Monday and Tuesday should actually be pretty interesting stages. So um, keep your eye out for those. Sign up for that at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. If you're interested, thank you, and I'll talk to you next week, and enjoy the Giro. Thank you.